Welcome to It Starts at Birth, a podcast dedicated to empowering women to having the birth that they choose. Today, I'm here with Faith, and we're going to talk about part two of a series focused on casting a continuous spotlight on the maternal mortality rate in the United States. Faith, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm so glad that you guys have taken the time to listen to today's podcast. Our focus of the last episode in this multi-part series was see the problem, as in C-section, the problem, and just we took a look at how C-section rates and the maternal mortality rate in the United States seem to certainly relate to each other. And the topic of today's episode is, does ACOG see the problem? That's right, Faith, and ACOG stands for the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, um, and they are the ones who are in charge of um, helping set policy for um, the American hospitals, and so I think it's very important to hear what they have to say. So thank you so much for joining us for It Starts at Birth. Let's get right into it. So in our last episode, when we were comparing the high maternal mortality rate in the U.S. with the rise of cesarean rates, um, it was very clear that there is correlation, if not causation, between um, those high numbers. And in this episode of It Starts at Birth, we're going to highlight the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists assessment of both of these concerning numbers. And before um, we dive into those segments um, that we have to discuss about ACOG's assessment, I want to keep a couple of numbers in front of all of our listeners as we continue to cast this spotlight on the maternal mortality rate in the United States. We're committed to not stopping talking about this and keeping it hopefully in conversations in living rooms and between families and between mothers um, until something is done to improve the maternal mortality rate here in the U.S. So here are a few of the numbers to keep in mind and we covered these a little bit more in depth at the beginning of the last episode but um, one of the really interesting things about the maternal mortality rate in the United States is that it um, really was a lot lower in our lifetime. It leveled off at about nine deaths per 100,000 in the late 1990s, so at a significantly better spot than it's at today. Um, But since 1997, the numbers began their increase back up to today's crisis-level numbers, and that puts us, the numbers that we currently have, Um, here in the U.S., ranking last overall among industrialized countries. You've probably heard about this in the news quite a bit. Um, The maternal mortality rate in the U.S. is 17 deaths per 100,000 pregnancies. This uh, represents about 660 maternal deaths in the uh, year of 2018. So, Those numbers add up, especially when you consider all the people affected by the deaths of those mothers 
and the children and the spouses and the significant others, it's a really heavy number to think about. And that's um, something that happens every year. Um, additionally, this is such an important factor is that there's a lot of disparity in um, the average of our MMR rate as well. Because for black women, 37.1 die per 100,000 pregnancies. So it's two and a half times the ratio of white women in the United States. And additionally, state ratios um, vary very widely as well. In 2018, some states reported more than 30 maternal deaths per 100,000, and some reported fewer than 15. So um, it's important if you are expecting or you want to be part of this conversation to figure out where your state ranks and to get familiar with the numbers so that we can have conversations and demand the change that's needed. Um, but one of the things that really brought us to the core of our topic of conversation for the last episode was that um, according to the CDC, the cesarean rate rose by 53% from 1996 to 2007, reaching um, 32% of all births. All births were done, um, of all births, 32% were done uh, via cesarean rather than vaginal. And um, that number is the highest ever reported in the United States. And because that increase began in 1996, when we also saw that the maternal mortality rate had leveled off and really gotten to a fairly good point, um, that it began its increase roughly about the same time that the maternal mortality rate here in the United States began its spike, it's definitely something that needs to be looked at side by side. And we really did that quite a bit in um, the last episode. But today what we want to do is just get an idea of what the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists think about both of those numbers, the maternal mortality and the C-section rate, because if any change and meaningful change is going to be done, it's going to have to be in many ways uh, related to what ACOG um, assesses and then demands. So on today's episode, we're going to be taking a look, first of all, at who ACOG is. So if you're not familiar, you'll get a quick idea of what their role in your birthing environment and your birthing outcomes is. Second, we will take a look at what ACOG has to say about the high maternal mortality rate in the United States and just kind of see where they're at on this problem and where they've been at um, over the years. And then last... But not least, we will take a look at what ACOG has to say about high C-section rates and just kind of hopefully get a picture of why we're at where we're at and what's in the works to be done about that and, and talk about if that's enough. Okay, so first of all, um, who is ACOG? Well, let's take a look at when ACOG got started and, and how long they've been around. Um it was founded in Chicago back in 1951, and today it currently consists of over 37,000 physicians specializing in obstetric gynecological care. So certainly um, leaders and a very core group of what um, 
what and who would be essential to understanding and addressing the problems that are facing us. The purpose of the organization is to promote and then maintain high standards for women's health care by providing quality continuing education for its members and establishing patient care standards. And they additionally propose policy as well. So while ACOG is very important in, um, yes, assessing the problem and making change for the future, it also, as we shared in the last episodes, um, in the last episode should be stated that they also hold a lot of the responsibility for why things are at where, uh, where they are. And that's in so many ways because they are part of establishing the patient care standards and protocols. So that, that's an important thing to keep in mind as we discuss what ACOG has to say on these topics. Another interesting thing that um, ACOG has established and puts out quite a bit of information on in terms of their mission and uh, what they want to address as a group and as an organization is that they um, have a departmental website that is dedicated to providing information for both physicians and their patients to help prevent violence against women. Uh, which is good. That's definitely something that's important to the care of women. But one of the things that I um, I feel is a bit ironic about that is that um, at the end of the day, let's not forget that a maternal mortality rate or a t- maternal morbidity rate um, which is, um, you know, unnecessary procedures or um, things that go wrong but don't necessarily result in death. Um, those are all, in various ways, a form of violence against women. So, you know, for ACOG to live up to what it really wants to address, and I'm sure there are many good members in ACOG that are working to address um, these problems in meaningful ways. Um, let's keep in mind that preventing violence against women in many ways needs to happen within the medical industry as well and not just talk about what's happening at home and what type of violence happens on the streets, but also that women are often mistreated because of the policies that are in place or the things that are overlooked um, within the medical industry. So that's just a point I wanted to highlight but that gives you a rough idea of kind of who ACOG is and what they um, they say they stand for. So let's now take a look at what ACOG has to say about the high MMR rate because, of course, their voice on this is very important. So through the years, um, because let's remember that from 1997 to today is over 20 years, um, ACOG has had quite a lot to say about the maternal mortality rate, um, and it is woven in through many of the, the pieces they put out on their website. So there's a lot that they have to say about it, but some of the interesting things I found that ACOG has had to say about the high MMR rate um, goes back, first of all, to something they said in 2015. Um, while they did identify the following 
items as key threats to maternal wellness. And these include, um, you know, commonly understood problems like obstetric hemorrhage, severe hypertension, and they did state primary cesarean births and racial, racial disparities during pregnancy as problems. Um, one of the things that I think is very interesting about that 2015 statement is that it doesn't necessarily line up um, in totality with their statement on C-sections, um, which we'll cover in the next section of this um, of this call, so here in just a minute, because they specify primary cesarean births. Um, and the interesting thing about that is when you stack cesarean births on top of each other, and there's a lot of evidence out there to support that you don't necessarily always need a cesarean um, just because you initially had a cesarean, that VBACs may in fact be a better option because of how dangerous secondary and third cesareans become. The danger builds for women. So that um, assessment of the problem seemed to be um, hyper-focused on one type of cesarean when our understanding um, through data seems to be now that cesareans stacked on each other are even more dangerous than primary cesareans. So that's something to keep in mind about that 2015 statement. Something else that I thought was very um, interesting inside of that 2015 statement was that they said, we must do a better job at addressing maternal mortality in the U.S. It also means recognizing that a more wide-ranging approach to wellness means screening for intimate partner violence, depression, and substance abuse. Now look, those things aren't good, and those things are, I'm sure, things to consider. But when we're listening to those who set the policy for us, it feels a little bit like victim blaming. Um, well, maybe these women are dying because they have issues, because um, their partner isn't kind to them, um, because they have depression, because they have substance abuse issues, which those can certainly be factors in um, maternal mortality rates. But when we're talking about the people who set the policies, I would prefer to more often hear them discuss um, what they have done and what they need to do differently to get us to a better spot. So that was their kind of 2015 summary that I found um, when they addressed the maternal mortality rate back a few years ago. Fast forward to January of this year, January of 2021, and um, one of the pieces that they put out and their statements on maternal uh, mortality awareness was that they were going to make an MMR awareness day. And a big reason that they cited that this was um, their course of action was because back in 2000. 16, New Jersey had began the conversation um, within the state of making their own awareness day. It was the New Jersey section of ACOG along with the New Jersey Obstetrical and Gynecological Society, the Association of Women's Health, Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses, 
And the New Jersey affiliate of the American College of Nurse Midwives had decided to put this awareness day together. Um, Notably missing from this list is um, CPM, Certified Professional Midwives. They also play an important role in fixing this problem. Um, So it's interesting that they weren't a part of this committee that put this awareness day together. But ACOG um, said that enthusiasm uh, created through this awareness day um, prompted all sections to begin educational programs to promote community, patient, and other stakeholder awareness of maternal health risks. Now, that's great. That's what um, a lot of people are trying to do. A lot of publications are continuing to talk about uh, maternal health. We're talking about maternal health on this podcast. Certainly ACOG should as well. But again, um, you know, the problem isn't so much with we need ACOG to create awareness. We need ACOG to create solutions for us and to identify what they've done wrong and why the problem is where it is because it does go back to the medical industry in this country. Um, It seems to be that the way we deliver and, um, you know, funnel women through the birthing system has a lot more to do with our maternal mortality rate uh, versus our awareness of the problem. We kind of have a blind trust, yes, inside of the way things are done, and that leads us to a spot maybe um, where we as women, we as families can become acquainted with the facts and fix the problems, um, or at least protect ourselves and insulate ourselves from some problems. But what we really want ACOG to do is to say, hey, here is a big area we've realized is a contributor to this, and here's how we're going to fix it. So an awareness day? Okay, great. But what else are you going to do? That's what I would love to to know and I'm going to do some more research on, but those were the things that I found most prevalent, those statements and this awareness day in January of 2021. So I'm looking for a bit more and I'll let you know uh, what I find. And an additional layer of what ACOG has to say about the MMR needs to come down as well to uh, what they have to say about the minority discrepancies and violations Um, And so that was something I did a little bit of uh, additional research in, in terms of this topic itself. And what I found about um, their minority discrepancies and violations, what I'm about to share with you, is not um, in relationship to the maternal mortality rate or a statement that I found on um, how they see race and the high maternal mortality rate um, being so high for people of color. I didn't find a statement specifically about that. I'm not saying it's not out there, though. Um, But what I did find about their statements on minority discrepancies and violations was very eye-opening, especially, again, for being from a group that sets policies and that has created the system that we're in in so many ways. Um, So here are just some of the statements that they had uh, to share about about this topic, this segment of the topic. Um, And it's that in less obvious ways, they say, um, implicit bias may affect the way that OBGYNs counsel 
patients about treatment, options such as contraception, vaginal birth after cesarean, and even things as basic as the management of fibroids. They say that the racial and ethnic disparities in women's health, including higher rates of uh, preterm birth, maternal mortality, and breast, cervical, and endometrial cancer deaths among Black women, cannot be reversed without addressing racial bias, both implicit and explicit. We recognize that structural and institutional racism contribute to and exasperate these biases. So they recognize that within their organization, these things um, take place and certainly contribute to that maternal mortality rate. Um, But then they do go on to say that the history and daily experiences of our patients of color may negatively affect their perceptions of the healthcare system. This may be manifested as mistrust of healthcare providers, avoidance of care, and not, felt, and not following medical advice. Now, one of the things that I find interesting about how so much of what's written on ACOG's site um, is the clever wording they choose. Because they often uh, cloak strong statements with a little bit of fluff at the beginning and the end. I, I perceive it as fluff anyways. Um, in a way to kind of take away the brunt of the core statement of whatever they're reporting on. Especially if it's something not very favorable to the way care is being performed in this country. Or the way it looks like it's been being performed. And one of the words I wanted to dissect in that segment is that um, they used the word perceptions. They say the history and daily experiences of our patients of color may negatively affect their perceptions of the healthcare system. Um, it seems to me that, you know, if, if your sisters are dying, um, your friends, your family um, of color are dying. It's more than a perception. It's a real problem. It's a real concern. And if people do, in the end, um, end up developing a mistrust of healthcare providers, it's um, very logical and it's very right for them to have that distrust. And then they go on to say, though, that this can lead to avoidance of care and not following medical advice. Um, that again seems to be kind of putting the blame back on the people, putting the blame back on the women who are experiencing these issues. Well, at the end of the day, they may get so concerned, they may get so scared that they avoid their care that they should have taken the advice on, um, and they don't follow medical advice. Um, you know, maybe that happens to a degree and for logical good reasons, um, but again, shouldn't ACOG be more focused on saying, we're going to fix this problem and here's what we're doing wrong instead of saying, again, um, you know, what the victims begin to do wrong in response to the situation. And in this same report on minority discrepancies and violations, um, here's some of the most concerning information I found. Um, they, They state that medicine 
including the field of obstetrics and gynecology, has engaged in practices that were very harmful to women of color. These practices include performing experimental gynecological surgery on enslaved women in the mid-1800s and the, the, the testing of high-dose hormonal um, contraceptives on Puerto Rican women and other women of color in the 1950s. And that was something I had heard of before. I was a resident of Puerto Rico for a couple of years and uh, recognized that there was quite a, a bit of oppression on the island and did some history, and that was one of the concerning things I had come across, um, but had never heard of it living in the United States, um, that Puerto Rican women had been tested on um, and without their knowledge that that's what was being done to them. Uh, but then more recently, from 2005 to 2013, Numerous incarcerated women in California, who are disproportionately women of color, were sterilized without lawful consent. That's very recent, and um, I think it signifies how much that this um, type of care in our country is in need of change um, and is in need of really tearing apart the way they do things because uh, that is just a symptom of a very big problem. So that gives you some of the perspective of ACOG's um, statements and assessment of maternal mortality rate um, and a contributing factor like racial discrepancies. Uh, that certainly, I'm sure, is not the full picture that ACOG puts out there, but sometimes you do just have to kind of dig in and take a look at some of the things that seem a little bit off. Um, and again, not just take a look at the fluff on every side of what's released, but pull out some of those um, really revealing statements and you'll get a clearer picture of what a person or a group stands for. But because of the information that we covered um, on, la on the last episode, and the correlation, if not causation, of high C-section rates in conjunction with high maternal mortality rates, it's important to take a look at what ACOG has to say about the high C-section rates, especially because, again, they set a lot of the policy for when and why C-sections should be performed. So that's what we'll cover now here as we get towards the end of this episode. So it's clear uh, that ACOG does recognize that there is reason for concern in the numbers and that um, the U.S. does have such high cesarean rates. Um, they did a piece called Safe Prevention of the Primary Cesarean Deliver or Delivery. They did this in 2014 and reaffirmed this report in 2019, and, and they do say that it's higher than necessary. They say, first of all, that the rapid increase in cesarean birth rates from 1996 to 2011, without clear evidence of um, correlating decreases in maternal and neonatal morbidity or mortality raises significant concern that cesarean delivery is overused. And one of the things that they share in relation to this report 
is that it may be necessary to revisit the definition of labor discotia because recent data shows that contemporary labor progresses at a rate substantially slower than what was historically taught. Now, one of the reasons that I think that that statement is very interesting and I'm kind of laughing at it is because of the word contemporary. They say that recent recent data shows contemporary labor progresses at a rate substantially slower than what was historically taught. And let's just say that um, as a woman, I've had a pretty good idea that labor could take a very long time. Uh, My mother had many natural labors and, you know, they can be several hours and they can last for some women for many days. Um, And so it, I just think that that's kind of interesting. But the reason that that um, is important in connection with their statement on prevention of primary cesarean deliveries is uh, because a lot of C-sections, and in fact, according to a pie chart that I found on the CDC's website, a majority of C-sections are performed because um, of different terms, but ultimately it comes down to labor that's taking too long to progress. Um, So the largest reason that C-sections are performed in this pie chart I'm referring to from the CDC is that um, is 34% and that is for labor arrest. So both labor arrest and labor dystocia um, come into how long it's taking for your labor to move through the three stages. And there can be real concerns for, um, you know, labor taking way too long. Um, I'm not saying that that's never a real concern, but um, when you realize that the majority of C-sections are happening because of this, because labor takes too long, and then you have in conjunction with that ACOG saying, we've maybe been teaching our practitioners that, um, you know, labor takes long, or we've maybe been teaching them to consider labor that's taking a normal amount of time uh, to be potentially dangerous. I think that's just something that people should be aware of. And and of course, there I'm summarizing, but um, it could just be the way that they're being trained, um, these medical professionals, to jump over to C-section is dangerous um, just because it leads to this escalation of the birthing process, which is natural and safe for the majority of women to go through naturally or um, to go through without that C-section intervention. And an additional point that they had to say in this statement about the safe prevention of C-sections is that increasing women's access to non-medical interventions during labor, such as continuous labor and delivery support, has also been shown to reduce cesarean birth rates. So there's a couple of really simple, basic human things that could help to reduce the cesarean rate, according to what ACOG is saying, and they're even saying that maybe they've the way they've been teaching um, their, the people in their organization that labor progresses is wrong. So important things to note again. 
they also share that cesarean um, rates do provide or impose, I suppose, an increased risk for women. Um, Of course, there are clinical conditions such as placenta previa or uterine rupture that cesarean delivery is firmly established as the safest route of delivery. However, they say for most pregnancies which are low-risk, cesarean delivery appears to pose greater risk of maternal morbidity and mortality than vaginal delivery. Um, Additionally, and this refers to the point I made earlier in this episode, they say that the combination of complications from multiple C-sections not only significantly increases maternal morbidity, but also increases the risk of adverse neonatal outcomes, such as neonatal intensive care unit admission and perinatal death. Thus, although the initial cesarean delivery is associated with some increases in morbidity and mortality, the downstream effects are even greater because of the risks from repeat. So that's something to keep in mind, especially for women who want to have multiple children or at least have that option, putting them in a spot where they had an unnecessary C-section really, again, limits their choices and their options later on. And that's something that we need to keep talking about in this country in a lot of different viewpoints and on a lot of different topics is making sure that women have all the choices on the table. So that's what ACOG has to say about high C-section rates. And um, again, one of the things I wanted to kind of close with in this episode is that we should not just assume that the C-section rates we have are okay. Even ACOG is saying they're concerning. Um, The World Health Organization says we should be closer to 10% of all births being C-sections rather than 30% C-sections. And when you take a look at the C-section rates here in the United States, um, you just see chaos um, and that uh, opinions of medical professionals from place to place are rampant and prioritization for mothers' well-being really isn't the forefront of what is leading to these C-sections. Um, First of all, if you look from hospital to hospital, there is a tenfold variation in the cesarean delivery rate across hospitals in the United States. So in some hospitals, you have cesarean rates at 7%. In other hospitals, you have cesarean rates closer to 70%. Um, And, you know, okay, well, maybe there's more low-risk, high-risk mothers in these different hospitals, and that accounts for the variation Well, actually, there's a 15-fold variation among low-risk women um, getting cesarean versus those that are high-risk. So it it, that fluctuates as well from 2.4% to 36.5%. So that's not the main reason that women are getting these C-sections either. Um, Because studies that have evaluated the role of maternal characteristics like age, weight, and ethnicity, they have consistently found that these factors do not account fully for the temporal increase in the cesarean delivery rate or its regional variations. 
and these findings suggest that other potentially modifiable factors, such as patient preferences and practice variation among hospital systems and healthcare providers, likely, uh, likely contribute to the escalating cesarean delivery. Now, um, you know, I agree, practice variation among hospitals, systems, and healthcare providers certainly contribute to the escalating cesarean delivery, but they throw in their patient preferences. Um, you know, patients typically want what's safest for their babies. So let's just assume that most likely the patients are being are wanting what they're being told is safest. And when it comes to that uh, pie chart I was talking about earlier, um, even the CDC says only about 3% of cesarean rates seem to be by request from mothers. So again, let's not victim blame here um, and say it's because of patient preferences. This, again, really comes down to what ACOG is teaching is acceptable and then what different physicians choose to do and, and sometimes push on their patients. So when you take a look at what ACOG has to say about the high C-section rates and that they are concerning, um, and also kind of some of the limited stuff they have to say on the maternal mortality rate in the U.S. and then understand what a big role they play um, or have played in getting us to where we are and also how essential they are to fixing things in the future, um, I think it's really great that we took the time to talk through ACOG's assessment of the problem and um, of all these numbers side by side. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, I mean, when you showed me your notes for this episode, I knew there wasn't going to be a lot for me to add because you've obviously done your research and this is something that helps point us to the right um, path to a solution, understanding that People should be asking these questions, um, understanding that people are dying unnecessarily, and there are places in the world that we can learn from, and we can learn from our own past to return to when people um, were dying at a rate that was much more in line with the healthcare system that we have here in the United States. And as we continue to answer those questions or ask the right questions, it's going to lead us on to new questions. So I'm really excited about hearing your next episode. You've already been talking to me about it. It's something you're really excited about, too. This is, you know, something that's become um, uh, something you're very, very passionate about, and I'm enjoying listening to you share everything that you find. Well, thanks, Mark, and I appreciate you listening to um, all of the conversations I have where I'm bringing up new information and new data. I think the, fun, the most fun part of putting these podcasts together is the fact that I don't know where the data is going to take me. I just have questions, and then I, I read medical reports, and sometimes I'm really horrified by what I find. But I feel so much power in um, just highlighting and bringing up this information so that more people who don't have, you know, a couple of hours in the evening to put into reading through medical reports can get some of the same information and turn it over in their head and think about how to fix it in the future. A major um, conclusion that I have from putting all of this together too is that, um, you know, when it comes to this topic of well-supported birth in the United States and having better outcomes, I think one of the things that we as just the people have to stop assuming 
is that because physicians are trained, um, that they're experts in every part of birth and they are experts in the interventions and they are experts in certain aspects of birth. But according to ACOG's own admission, in some ways in this, they are trained wrong and verily and very wrong. So that's just something for all of the parents, mothers, fathers, and listeners on this episode to keep in mind that um, just because you're talking to a medical expert doesn't mean you should quiet your own intuition and your own questions. You should do the research and find out um, what is wrong and what is right in the system and then act accordingly. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us for It Starts at Birth. This has been a very fun project and we continue to be excited about where it leads us. So thank you for joining us on this journey. My name is Mark. And my name is Faith. And join us soon for another episode of It Starts at Birth.